Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through, fa- through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, before we start, let's, uh, let's bow for a brief word of prayer. God, we thank you for this time, and uh, you know, just like every Sunday when we hear your word, we know your word is living, and it is active, and we ask, God, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, your word would come alive within our hearts, that it would demonstrate its power, not simply in our minds, but uh, that our very, um, the deepest part of our hearts would feel the reality of the word that you speak to us. Would you speak to us uh, as a community here gathered today, but would you also speak to us personally and individually um, and give us the encouragement that we need uh, as we dwell and focus upon um, not only Christ, but also what he has to say to us today. Give us ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time or if you've been away for a while, we have been going through the book of Hebrews for a couple months now. I think we started this in April. And for the next two weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, which uh, if you have, uh, if you're somebody who's familiar with the Bible and gone to church, uh, it's it's a kind of a famous chapter, I think, because it's known as a faith chapter. And what it basically does is it summarizes all these people in the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures who learned to live by faith. And if you were here last week, uh, last week's passage ended with this quotation from Habakkuk that talked about how the righteous live by faith. And so for the next two weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to just explore this topic of faith and we're going to learn from uh, what the author of Hebrews calls a great cloud of witnesses. We're going to look and see uh, what it means to live by faith. Now, faith, I think, is a word that you hear everywhere, but especially in Christianity, faith is a word that I think you hear a lot. 
But uh, I think maybe sometimes faith can also be a little bit misunderstood in terms of what it means and what it is. Uh, most of us probably have uh, some understanding of what faith is, but a lot of us probably also have a partial understanding of what faith is and what a life of faith is, and I think there's a reason for that. You know, if you ever want to get a full picture of what something is, you need more than a definition. Oftentimes, you need to see that definition fleshed out a little bit in real life and real world circumstances. Uh, as I mentioned uh, last week, recently my family, uh, we moved to a new place, and so you know, I've been doing a lot of building furniture and hanging stuff on the walls. And uh, anytime you want to hang like a shelf on the wall, uh, you need something called an anchor. Right? If you're not uh, like a tool person, <laughs> then um, you might not know what that is. But an anchor is basically something that you put in the drywall where it allows heavy things to, to hold onto the wall, so things like a TV. Now, the definition of an anchor is just that. An anchor is used to hang objects on a wall. And that's a simple enough definition, but when you try to use an anchor, you start to realize you don't fully understand the nature of an anchor and what an anchor does and how to use an anchor until you actually see it used in real life world situations. Because there's different types of anchors. There's a different type of anchor that you put on drywall. There's a different type of anchor that you put in brick or cement or uh, metal studs. There's a different type of anchor that you use to hang shelves. There's a different type of anchor that you use to hang TVs. And so uh, I think what uh, ends up happening is you have this definition and maybe you think you know what an anchor does but then you kind of need to see that fleshed out in terms of how the anchor works right uh, there's a ton of examples like that where you get a definition but then you have to see things fleshed out in real life situations I think that's the beauty of this passage because what this passage does is it begins with a definition of faith and it tells us what faith is but then in the rest of the chapter what you have is example after example after example of that definition being fleshed out about what does it mean to live a life by faith. And the definition is given right in the beginning, the very first verse. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, I think in our culture, maybe some people tend to think faith is like this uh, blind trust where uh, you don't use reason, you don't use your mind, and you kind of believe in something in spite of the evidence. Uh, I am uh, a fan of sports, and I am a fan of the basketball team, the New York Knicks. And uh, blind trust is a little bit like saying, I have faith that the New York Knicks will win a championship this year in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, right? When people look at religion and hear words like faith, they might think that uh, what faith is is you believe in something in spite of evidence to the contrary. But then if you look at the words used in verse 1, it uses words like assurance, words like conviction. It uses words that are a bit stronger than this blind trust or believing in some kind of fantasy. Uh, in fact, if you look at some Bible translations, uh, like the King James Version, uh, the word for conviction is actually translated as evidence when it refers to things not seen. It's the evidence of things not seen. And I actually think that's probably a better translation because conviction seems more subjective in terms of what I'm convicted of. Evidence seems more of an objective reality. And at least what the commentators say about the Greek word is it's more of the latter. It's the objective reality of what's true and what's real, the evidence of things that are not seen. So when we say faith is supposed to be grounded in something real, we should also say that that doesn't necessarily mean faith has to be grounded in something that is material in nature. Uh, in fact, faith is supposed to explicitly be, right, as it says in verse 1, the conviction or the evidence of things that we don't see, things that are not seen. Uh, 
And I think some people immediately have a problem with that because they assume that reality is only reflected in the material world. If it's not composed of atoms, if it's not something that we can measure with our physical senses, then it must not be real. And I think that's why some people struggle with believing in God, right? They say, well, I can't see God. And if I can't see God, how do I know that God is real? And therefore, people oftentimes will put faith against science and they'll say science is more grounded in reality because it aims to establish the evidence of what can be seen. But if you really think about it, the most important things in life, I would say, are probably things that are immaterial in nature, things that we can't see. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, I think uh, all people uh, would probably say that, even though they might not uh, see it immediately. If you think about meaning and purpose, something all humans need, that's immaterial in nature. You can't function in life without meaning and purpose. Love, love is another thing that's immaterial in nature, but you need love to make relationship meaningful. Truth, truth is something immaterial in nature, but you need something to be true if you're going to function in a world without chaos. Uh, I remember listening to this debate a long, long time ago between a Christian academic and uh, a physiologist who uh, was also a very strong atheist, and uh, they were debating uh, regarding the existence of God. And in this debate, uh, the atheist was arguing about the laws of logic and was saying, you know, the laws of logic are universal, and therefore we have to use the laws of logic if we want to make a reasonable argument. And if we use the laws of logic, they are going to show the contradictions in terms of the arguments for the existence of God, right? That's the position he's taking. And uh, there's a portion of the debate where they're you know, cross-examining each other and challenging each other and asking each other questions. And the atheist is examining the Christian and trying to get at the immaterial nature of God. So, uh, and you know, the reason he does that, of course, is to try to show the absurdity of believing in something that is immaterial in nature. So he says, is God material or immaterial? And the Christian says, God is spirit. God is immaterial. Then he says, can you give me an example of something else that you would believe in and give your ultimate authority to that is immaterial in nature. And you know, the Christian's response was actually very well-timed because uh, his response was basically this, the laws of logic. And the audience chuckles at that point because they see the inherent contradiction of what this atheist uh, debater was actually doing. This whole time he's arguing about the ultimate authority of something immaterial in nature, the laws of logic. And then uh, at the same time, trying to prove God is not worth, uh, God can't be real because he, he's immaterial in nature. And uh, even he, even though he didn't see it in that moment, I think would say the most important things in life are probably immaterial in nature. Now, uh, why do I say, I know most of you are not necessarily interested in philosophical debate and I don't uh, really love debates like that because I don't think it wins a person's heart but uh, even if an intellectual argument doesn't win a person's heart, you know what might win a person's heart? Love. Love is also immaterial in nature. And you see, in the Christian faith, unseen realities, or what we might call spiritual realities, are incredibly important. Uh, the Apostle Paul refers to three things, faith, hope, and love, in five of his letters. All three of those things, immaterial in nature. 
In Romans 8, 24 to 25, Paul is very explicit about the fact that these are unseen realities because when he talks about hope, he says, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hope for, hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so you see, it's the unseen realities that I think ultimately give us the right perspective and the enduring strength to overcome the hardships in life. And that's exactly what this community needs. They're experiencing hardship in life. They're being persecuted for their faith. Uh, from their physical eyes, they're saying, oh, living the life of faith, maybe it's not worth it. And some people are even tempted to fall away. And what this author, the author of Hebrews, is trying to encourage them is live by faith, which means live according to unseen realities. Now, as we examine the history of people who have lived by faith uh, in the next sections, I think one of the things that we will see is they did live according to these unseen realities. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you want to please God, if you want to please Jesus, then in the final analysis, and that's what one of the verses says, the final analysis, you have to live by faith. You have to live according to these unseen realities because these unseen realities are ultimately what's going to have the greatest impact in your life. After all, God is spirit, therefore he is unseen. And according to verse 3, he created that which we see, that which is visible, out of things that which were not seen. He brought the entire universe, all of creation, by his very word out of nothing, right? So faith, which is a gift from God, is, by definition in verse 1, having assurance and conviction of that which we do not see. And when we live by faith, when we live according to these spiritual realities, these unseen things, it makes a world of difference. How so? Well, let's look at some of these examples. Uh, you know, it's a little bit difficult to think about how to structure the sermon because he's basically going through like big chunks of the Old Testament in these small verses. But I think what we'll do is we'll uh, very briefly look at each character and see what we learn about faith through their lives. And when we do, I think... Um, We'll learn three things. I'm going to combine two of them. We'll learn three things. The first thing is faith makes God our greatest and highest priority in life. The second is faith ultimately is personal and intimate. And third, faith listens to God. Faith obeys God. So first, faith makes God our greatest priority. We learned this from the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the first children of Adam and Eve, and Cain is known to commit the very first murder recorded in the Bible because he kills his brother Abel. Now, why does he kill his brother Abel? Well, the reason is he was angry because God regarded Abel's offering and found it to be a more acceptable sacrifice uh, than Cain's. Now, why was Abel's sacrifice better? If you read Genesis 4, it tells us Abel offered the firstborn, uh, the firstborn of his flock but Cain, he just simply offered fruit. The difference is not that one person offered livestock and the other person offered fruit, but the difference is uh, Abel gave God the firstborn, gave God the best. Now, why is that significant? Does it really matter whether you offer your firstborn or your first fruits uh, to God? It does. The reason is usually the first things that are produced are the most special to us. Uh, I think certain cultures understand the significance of this. Uh, <clears throat> you know, speaking to non-Asian uh, friends, 
uh, I, I think you know, they find the practice, you know, many of you who come from Asian cultures, you, you might give your parents money and support them and things like that. Um, speaking to my non-Asian friends, oftentimes they find that to be uh, a very strange thing to do. Um, and I don't know if this is, uh, I think this is a tradition of Korean culture. I mean, I'm Korean American, so I guess I should know, but I don't know. I think this is a tradition of Korean culture. But when you start working and you get your first job out of college, uh, I think the tradition is you, you give your first paycheck to your parents, right? Some of you are nodding. Um, I don't remember if I did that. I don't think I did that. Shame on me. But anyway, why, why do you do that? Why is that a part of the culture? It's not necessarily because the, your, the parents need the money, but it's really a, it has symbolic value in terms of you're giving respect and you're giving gratitude for what they did for you as parents, for how they raised you, for how they supported you, for you to get to this point, and I guess that's the point of independence where you start making your own money, and you give your first paycheck to them as a way of showing respect and honor before you start to focus on your own needs in that kind of culture, right? So not only that, it's, it's, a, it's just a symbolic thing that says, you know, this first paycheck is really exciting to get. It's probably going to be the most special paycheck I get. The second paycheck won't be as special because it won't be as new, but this first one is special to me. And even though it is so special to me, I am willing to give it away. And I guess the symbolic value is saying this. If I can give that which is most special to me, then um, essentially it's saying I am willing to give anything over to you, right? I think offering of the firstborn of, um, of the cattle or offering the first fruits of the harvest has a similar meaning in uh, Jewish culture or ancient Jewish culture or at least in, in the context of Genesis. And when Abel is giving that firstborn to God as an offering, it is basically communicating uh, that God, you are my greatest and highest priority. Uh, giving you glory, giving you honor, giving you respect is my greatest priority. Before I even think about my own needs and before I even think about myself, I want to make sure that I can give you that which is most precious to me as a way of ultimately worship to you. I think that's why uh, Abel's sacrifice was more highly regarded than Cain's. So faith, what does it mean to live by faith? Well, what does he do? He regards God higher than even himself. He regards God as having the greatest and the highest priority in his life. Second, faith, I think, is personal and intimate. And uh, Enoch is this really interesting character in the Bible because there's not much written about him. I think there's only about four verses written about Enoch. And he is well known in the Bible because he is one of two people who were taken up to heaven and never tasted death. There's not that much written about him except this one phrase. Enoch was someone who walked with God. That phrase, walked with God, actually tells us a great deal about the person of Enoch. Again, if you read the early chapters of Genesis, you know, there's a lot of repetition, right? God creates the world and it was good, it was good, it was good. And then when that repetition is broken, then you realize there is something special about that. Well, Enoch is in Genesis chapter 5 and there's a genealogy and there's a repetition. And the rep repetition of the genealogy is basically this. Uh, so-and-so fathered so-and-so and lived to uh, X amount of years and he died. Right, next person, same thing. And he died. And he died. And he died. Then you get to Enoch, and it doesn't say for Enoch, and he died. Uh, and so he stands out. But the second reason he stands out is because it says he walked with God. Now, 
There's a lot of corruption in the early chapters of Genesis when sin is introduced into the world. A lot of corruption. Walking with God is significant because in Genesis chapter 3, the first time you see that word walk is in when Adam and Eve, they disobey God, and it says God is walking in the cool of the day, and what Adam and Eve, they do, they hide from God. They're no longer walking with God. God is walking by himself, and they're kind of running away from God and trying to hide from him. And I think one of the ways that we understand the effect of sin is sin alienates us from God. Sin breaks that relationship that we are meant to have with God so that we are no longer walking with God, and therefore we hide from him, we run from him, we rebel against him, or we simply ignore him. And so you get to Enoch, and when it says that Enoch walked with God, what it's doing is it's introducing a little bit of hope that in the midst of all this violence and all this corruption that's going on and you know, the world is uh, you know, deconstructing and devolving, you get to Enoch and it says he walked with God. Therefore, it's, it's possible to have a relationship with God, again, even in spite of sin, and he offers this ray of hope. And therefore, Enoch was not only able to walk with God, but he pleased God. Why? Because he had faith. He lived by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Third, the last point. Faith listens to God. Uh, we could say faith obeys what God says. And I'm going to combine Noah and Abraham at this point. As sin enters into the world, as I said, things are devolving. Things are getting corrupt. And for the first time in the Genesis narrative, God expresses regret that he created uh, this creation because there is so much corruption and violence. And so what God decides to do, he says, I'm going to send a flood and I'm going to wipe out uh, creation and the violence and the corruption. And he says, Noah, what I want you to do is I want you to <coughs> build an ark. <coughs> Excuse me. And this ark is going to serve as an instrument for a new creation. Now, if you watch any movies about Noah, uh, this is probably the part that they dramatize or uh, they use for comedic purposes. But you think about being Noah in that moment and God says, you know, uh, build this huge ark because I'm going to make it rain for a long time and I'm going to send a flood. And you, you probably look kind of foolish to other people, right? You probably look a little bit crazy. Uh, you know, building uh, a small house is a ton of work. Building a huge ark, I'm sure, would be a ton of work. And what if... What God said never came to fruition. You just built this whole ark and probably spent many, many uh, hours building this thing for no reason. But the example of Noah is he listened to God. God said he was going to do something, and therefore Noah responded accordingly. Now, by the way, I think there are always going to be moments where listening to God is going to make you seem a little bit crazy, make you seem a little bit foolish. Uh, we... You know, when, uh, when the surrounding culture, which I think is, you know, in New York, uh, when it's, it's increasingly not compatible with Christianity and Christian values and the Christian worldview, I think you're going to have to expect that people will think you're a fool uh, if you live a life of faith. They're, it's just inevitable. There are going to be times where people are going to look at you a little bit strange and a little bit crazy. And, you know, there are a lot of things in the Bible that people in our cultural moment are going to probably regard as backward or nonsensical. But to live by faith means this. Like, just like Noah, you're willing to listen to God even if uh, people think you're crazy, even if what you're doing seems to be foolish. Now, living by faith means listening to God not only when you look foolish, but I think more applicable to our people here, I think living by faith means listening to God even when you don't know all the answers in life. I think that's crucial. 
Uh, we're going to focus on Abraham a little bit more next week, but if you think about Abraham, Abraham uh, listened to God when he didn't have a lot of answers from God. God says to Abraham, leave your home, go to this place that you're going to receive as an inheritance. And according to verse 8, it says he went out not knowing where he was going. Uh, I know many people here in this church are probably in a season where you don't really know what's next. What are you going to do next? What's the next stage in life? Are you going to stay in New York? Are you going to leave New York? Should I stay in my job? Should I leave my job? And when we don't know what that next step is or that next stage in life is, uh, we get very anxious, right? We just got to know. But think about what it would have been like for Abraham in this moment. God says, Abraham, leave your home. And Abraham's like, well, where am I going, God? Mm, I'm not going to tell you now, but just leave, right? God says, uh, you're going to have a son with Sarah. Abraham says, what? I'm so old, and Sarah's been barren, and she's getting old too. How is that going to happen? And God says, well, I'm not going to tell you that now. You know, there's all these questions that I imagine Abraham would have that he doesn't receive answers to, and yet he listens to God, even when he doesn't have all the answers. Now, the question for us is, right, this is a question I was asking myself as I was looking at this passage, what do we do with all this data, with all this information, with all, all these examples of witnesses of people who live by faith? And I think our tendency is probably to do this, is to say, well, I need to be more like Abel. I need to be more like Enoch. I need to be more like Noah, or I need to be more like Abraham. And then we try to do that from a place of uh, self-will, and I think we probably fail often, and some of us probably will fail miserably. And that's the thing, you know, human examples are useful and it's, you know, it's also very biblical uh, where someone will say, follow this human example. Paul, for example, says that, he says, imitate me, right? Basically follow my example. So that's a good thing to do to point out uh, something in terms of what it means to live by faith. But I guess the, the danger is that in pursuit of following that human example, uh, the danger is we might forget what the gospel does to us because we are so preoccupied with what we have to do, right? So how do we respond to a passage like this without falling into a trap of saying, I need to be more like this person, and then you fail miserably, and you're like, oh, woe is me. I can't have the kind of faith that these people had. I think we have to remember two things, okay? The first thing we have to remember is this. Jesus Christ, he demonstrated a perfect faithfulness so that our acceptance and our salvation is not contingent upon whether you or I have a perfect faith. You get that? If you think about what it means to live by faith, Jesus embodied that perfectly. The glory of God the Father was his greatest concern. He walked intimately with God until the very point where he bore our sin upon the cross and there was a severing or a separation of that relationship and he obeyed God even after struggling with that obedience in the garden of Gethsemane and eventually and ultimately he said I am going to listen to God and fulfill my mission and go to the cross and die for the sins of the world our hope is not ultimately upon the quality of our faith but it is on the quality of Jesus's faithfulness and that I think is very good news for us because could you imagine with all the ups and downs we go through in life uh, if our uh, acceptance before God if our salvation were contingent upon the quality of our faith. Uh, I imagine most of us would lack assurance, the assurance that we long for. It would be like watching God decide, you know, um, 
on the Tinder app, if you swipe right or left or something, one's rejection, one's acceptance. It's a, it would be a little bit like God, watching God decide, well, how is this person's faith today? I'm going to swipe right, I'm going to swipe left. I think that's a very miserable way to relate to God. There's no freedom and liberation and, and security in that. But you see, because of Jesus, we can be assured that even when our faith is weak, God will receive us, not on account of what we do, but on account of Jesus' faithfulness and righteousness. Second, so that's the first thing you have to remember. The second thing you have to remember is this. Faith is at first a gift, not a goal. It's a gift. To live by faith means faith is a means or an instrument through which we live by. Faith. God gives us the gift of faith so that we might know him, so that we might walk with him, so that we might walk according to how he created us and how he designed us. And when we receive the gift of faith, in other words, when we become believers and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is a gift that we ought to use freely. Uh, you know, if, if it's a little bit like if you give a child a bicycle and that child refuses to ride the bicycle because they're afraid to ride it, because uh, they're not sure what's going to happen, uh, because they just don't value the bicycle that they've been given as a gift. Uh, if we've received the gift of faith and we know Jesus Christ and yet we refuse to exercise that gift and live life according to that gift and live by faith, it's a little bit like that, right? We're wasting a valuable gift that God has given us. But if we do receive that gift and we do because of Jesus, we have the freedom to live by it, then the life that we live will be the very life that God envisions for us, and because of that, it will be a life, a glorious life. Now, not glorious by the world standard, right? Living by faith is not necessarily going to be the easiest thing to do or the most comfortable thing to do, but it will be a life that is closer to God, that is more intimate with God, that knows God more, that knows how God's will for us more, and because of that, simply because of that, Life will be filled with unspeakable joy, hope, security, love, and strength. And those things, those immaterial things that I think all people should know are some of the most important things in life, those things, if we have them through the gift of faith, will completely change how we live in the day-to-day. For this community, it means they'll be able to overcome hardship and persecution. Uh, for you and I, maybe something similar, maybe something different, um, but it will make our lives much more different, and I think much more full, because we'll be filled with Christ. Let's pray together.